0: The Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And, well, there really is only one topic when it comes to Brexit these days, and that is trade. Because we have moved on to the stage of Brexit in which we try and come to some sort of arrangement with the EU about our future trading arrangements. That's going to be going on for most of the year, so it's a good time to get in two proper experts to give us some pointers on what might happen, what to look out for, all that sort of stuff. Raoul Ruperel was a special advisor in the Department for Exiting the EU and then Theresa May's special advisor on Europe. He is now advising those nice people in the city at uh, Deloitte about what's going to happen. And we were joined by Meredith Crowley, uh, Associate Professor and reader of international economics at the University of Cambridge. But for our purposes, most importantly, a senior fellow at the UK in a changing Europe. Trade can seem a bit daunting, can seem a bit dry, but I think we got some good light and shade in here. Uh, But we started with the most obvious question, really. Here we go. Is there going to be a deal by the end of December?
1: Well, I think, on balance, I'd say probably there will be a deal. I think it's in the interest of both sides, and they're aiming for roughly the same thing in terms of a standard sort of free trade agreement in line with international precedents. That's not to say there aren't very large sticking points, which I'm sure we'll go into in some detail over the course of today. But um, I think, on balance, there can be a deal. But, uh, you know, we have to remember as well that because we are now in a situation where the difference between a deal and no deal is not that huge... Uh, obviously, there will be impacts, but it's smaller than it was. Um, the price either side is willing to pay for that deal is probably less as well. So um, while I think there will likely be a deal, um, you know, there are plenty of pitfalls along the way.
0: Would you agree, Meredith? that going to be a deal?
2: I'm much more n- negative and pessimistic about it now, having read the British negotiating mandate, than I was two weeks prior. Um, and so it seems to me like it would be a colossal mistake not to have at least a bare-bones deal, um, I think it's much more likely now, because I think with the British negotiating mandate coming out, it looks like they're much further from what they had sort of stated they were going for in the political declaration. And I think there's been a space that's opening up. So it's not clear to me if it's entirely just a little bit of posturing, mm. but I think some of the asks that they've got laid out are, are pretty big ones, and they're pretty far from the political declaration. So that makes me more pessimistic, although... Um, They managed to never leave without a deal thus far. Mm. So um, when push comes to shove, it does seem like the EU and the UK can sit down and and look for common ground and find the most essential things they need.
0: If I gave you a pound and said you've got to put it on deal or no deal, where would you put it right now?
2: I would put it on a a deal um, of some sort because at the end of the day you can always write a really crummy deal that doesn't do a lot. And that might be something that saves a lot of people. And so I think I'm American, looking at what's happened in the U.S. over the last few years. President Trump has pushed the U.S. to renegotiate a lot of deals, and he's made a big lot of rhetoric surrounding it. But for the most part, when these deals have come out, they didn't really change a whole lot. So it was easy to achieve a negotiation over something that your predecessor had already negotiated, but that you could mm. pause on. So I think, you know, in, in a sense, what Trump was doing was he took some of the deals Obama negotiated, picked them off the shelf, slapped a new label on, and then went forward. And so if the UK and the EU at the end of the day are willing to say, okay, well, we have broad agreement on 90% of issues and so we're going to put together a deal that covers at least, you know, half of those issues. And then we're just going to push the other stuff off to the future. I think they can get an agreement on some things. Um, I, we won't be done in a year, I would say no. that. That there's going to be, a, you know, it's going to have to be a framework for, for further work.
0: Um, I don't suppose they'll call it a crummy deal. I mean, it'd be amazing if they did. But would that be your expectation that it's going to be, I don't know how you would phrase it, a thin deal or a, a mini deal, or, or, or are you expecting the whole Bells and whistles by the end
1: of the year. No, I, th- I think it will be a sort of. I've the term I tend to use is a narrower and shallower deal than, than many people expect. Um, but there are obviously limits to how much you can take off. I think one thing we're seeing is that it's likely to be you know zero tariff, zero quota, or nothing at all. I don't think there is much in between the two, and I think the EU is very hesitant to get into a line by line tariff negotiation a couple of reasons one is time you know that that is very complicated you know will take a lot of time to do but also the politics of it are complicated on the eu side then they have to you know ra- uh, rally around and find exactly uh, what member states can agree on in terms of what tariff lines and what areas and, and they'll have different priorities so that becomes a lot more complicated so i think um you know if you're not having a zero tariff zero quota trade deal um by the end of this year then the chances are it is probably going to be be nothing, or, or sort of a, a much more minimal sort of series of little agreements to try and manage uh, manage the sort of no deal impact. Um, so I, I do think there are there are limits to sort of how how much you can lower the ambition in that sense. But yeah, I think in terms of if you get a trade deal, it you know it will if it does do zero tariffs, zero quota. It will obviously have some kind of level playing field. Although exactly what that will be, you know, we can discuss. But um, beyond that, it, it probably won't do a whole lot more, you know, it won't do a lot in terms of reducing trade frictions, in terms of mutual recognition of conformity assessments, in terms of um, you know services it's all going to be pretty uh, pretty basic in these other areas and then you have all the areas outside the FTA of course this isn't just a trade deal it's a future relationship mm. uh, and so there's lots of areas there which you know may have to be sort of deprioritised or delayed um, and which are very complicated for their own reasons take some of the security and particularly justice and home affairs areas you know they touch on a lot of member state competences. Um, there aren't many precedents in terms of third country uh, access to some of these databases and tools that the EU has uh, and so that's quite a novel and you know difficult and complex negotiation and how long that will take as well so it's all of these factors uh, into playing together I
0: mean uh, me uh, an idiot when it comes to this sort of stuff you've just set out in a couple of minutes enough there for me to think there is no way you could do all that in the space of 10 months and anybody thinking you could mm. is clearly completely crazy so why is the government pretending that they could get a full Deal by the end of the year, or are they not? Is that being sort of inferred? I mean, look, it
1: depends what you how you describe a full a full deal. Mm. I mean. You know, if you if you have zero tariffs, zero quotas, and if you can get that agreement, then obviously you're avoiding a line-by-line tariff negotiation. If, on rules of origin, um, you know, the EU seems to be suggesting it wants to use the existing framework in the pan-Euromed convention, which, again, you can sort of then import as, instead of having a separate rules of origin chapter, potentially, although Meredith will, I'm sure, have views on that, um, you know, that then saves some time of doing another separate line-by-line negotiation on that area. Um, so, you know, it... In theory, it is possible if there's willingness on both sides. I mean, a lot of this is put down to the UK. The EU isn't flat out saying this can't be done either, though. They are willing to engage on this and make the efforts to try and do as much as possible. There should, I think, be possibility to get something done, but it will be, it will be quite um, basic. And I do think both sides buy into this idea of building on it over time, and they are willing to do that. But, you know, obviously for business, that's another... You know, issue entirely because you know business are going to prepare for what comes at the end of this year not what might come down the line
0: Isn't it inevitable that this process is going to go on forever essentially, that there's always going to be new treaties, uh, tweaks to whatever treaties might be drawn up um, but nobody seems to be saying look Brexit is um, it's never going to end
2: well, th- to put this in context, so the U.S. had the North American Free Trade Agreement with Canada from 94, you know, and it was lasted good, you know, more than 20 years before they went to make some substantive changes to it. So that agreement was basically in force for 20 years, and then they said, okay, well, it's a little outdated, so we need to start working on a new deal, and they did, and that renegotiation took like seven years, and then it took, you know, so it takes time once you realize that what you have in place isn't working so well to work on the next iteration, right? And so it's it's the case that, like, if you read the negotiating mandates over digital services, so on both sides, I think, the EU and the UK, there's a lot of goodwill on both sides. They both governments can say, well, look, we know from business that there's going to be a lot of digital trade happening in the future, and we don't actually have a good model anywhere for what should govern this. There's no good model for the US, that, you know, agreements. There's no really good model... From economists and from people in law, who are you know, this is something that lawyers and economists are talking about. How should we be governing digital trade, both within countries and internationally? So there's some stuff that, so that's that's certainly going to have to keep being an evolving issue. But I think in terms of you know what could get done in ten months, I think it's super ambitious. And you know, best of luck to everyone engaged in this process. (laughs) But some stuff isn't that complicated. Under the WTO, when you negotiate a free trade agreement, you're supposed to have zero tariffs and quotas. So that's, as Raul just said, that's going to be the, a starting point. So in some sense, it's an up or down. Either we have free trade between the two groups or we don't. If we don't have free trade, you know, everything else is off. So then the question is, well, how important is free, tariff-free, quota-free trade on both sides and and what other things are they worried about? And the other things that are going to be complicated and messy. One is this issue of rules of origin. So when I buy something from Germany into the UK and I don't charge you import tariffs, I want to know that it's really German. In the case of everything from the EU, I want to know it's really EU content. But if I sold a tire from Britain to Germany and then it comes back attached to a car, I shouldn't, you know, I want to know that that British content should be part of it. So this Tracing supply chains gets messy. The European supply chain extends to this pan-meridian area. So figuring out how to do rules of war is going to be a bit messy. Another big messy thing is customs facilitation and value-added tax. So right now, everything in the European Union, if I'm a business, I have to file my de- that declaration monthly. And what I file in the U.K. gets shared with governments around Europe. So when they're checking their tax records in their countries, they can do this super efficient, you know, works way better than UK trade with external countries. There's a great system that does that now. And the question is, can the free trade agreement somehow work to keep that going? Because that would be a huge kind of cost and a loss just in terms of the efficiency of like governments getting the right amount of tax, avoiding fraud. So so the question is just do, do both sides really want to keep that going? It's tricky because... An agreement over something as boring as tax needs some kind of enforcement mechanism. What if a, what if one government just decides, oh, it's too expensive for us to manage this, and we're going to sort of not put enough resources in it? Well, the other side is going to say, well, look, you really need to keep up your end of the deal. You need to enhance your electronic infrastructure, and so you need dispute settlement. And this is where it's going to get super messy. And that's, <laughs> that's where that's these are yeah messy already. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I think but I think like the thing is there is one can say there is a lot of good stuff that happens in the relationship that doesn't necessarily infringe on sovereignty on either side. It's very technical, it's boring, and it's good. So Hmm. one thing is to keep those things alive.
1: Yeah, I think the VAT thing is an interesting example, though, because it's sort of presented as as technical and boring, and it is to an extent. But, you know, I remember when when I was in government and we were trying to negotiate then what was the backstop of the Northern Ireland Protocol, and one of the approaches we wanted to take was, OK, the UK is going to be in a essentially a customs union in that proposal with with the EU. Um, and we wanted to maintain access to the EU's VAT system and maintain it similar to how it was now. And that was when we are in a customs union and it was a flat-out no from the EU. They wouldn't even negotiate on it. Um, and it was, you know, they, they wouldn't consider it. And so the idea that will be in scope of a free trade agreement, which is obviously a step down from a customs union, I think is, is pretty unlikely. And so that's one of the areas where I would see is very unlikely to get much done this year and it's actually pretty difficult ever to get any kind of comprehensive agreement close to what we have now um, you know and then there's obviously how it's implemented you know the UK is talking about not even allowing postponed accounting um, of VAT which is a massive cash flow hit for businesses at the border you know they have to pay the VAT up front rather than on a delayed you know when it comes in and and so uh, you know that kind of stuff it, it, i think is the nature of having this kind of deal is means that stuff is unlikely to be in scope, and certainly not this year, I would have thought.
0: As you say, you've been in government, Raoul. When you walked into DexU, did you know about all this stuff before you even started? I mean, you can't have known everything that was coming down the track. Um, there must have been stuff that blindsided you, uh, and indeed the department. Um, you know, was it a surprise...? Not necessarily to you, but to to the department more widely, just how complicated this process was going to be.
1: So, I mean, before I went into government, I'd obviously been running a think tank called Open Europe, working on UK-EU issues for about six or seven years. Mm. So I felt like I had a good grounding in it and understood the issues. But obviously all the complexities involved with Brexit, there is always new things coming out and getting into the level of detail you need to get into in an actual negotiation. I think the thing, you know, the two things with the department, you know, I went in there as a special advisor with six or seven years experience. That was normally two or three times the experience most of the civil servants had, which is quite rare. And that was a problem that, you know, unfortunately, the civil service um, struggled with expertise on this area, both in trade and, and, and the EU. So, you know, that was one of the challenges. And I think that continues to this day, although, you know, obviously the civil service is doing the best job possible to train to train people up. Um, I think one of the most surprising aspects, though, was not necessarily the technical detail; was was really the politics of it. Um, mm. You know, I I sort of maybe naively, in some ways, thought that you know the country would be quicker at coming together and, and moving on beyond the referendum. Maybe it was the nature of the result and the campaign um, that meant it wasn't. Um, but that was obviously, in the end, what hampered things the most were, was the politics rather than necessarily all, all of the technical detail that's now changed with the election and the mm-hmm. majority but you know that was obviously one of the biggest um, the biggest challenges facing you know the department when we when we were there in 2016 but
0: there's still politics i mean as you say obviously the election has changed the, the dynamics is that where the complication comes around this if you like drawing up a trade deal is actually quite easy because you go well, this is why i want this is what you want and where do we how do we agree? But the politics of it, quite easy. I mean that, you know, in relative terms, but when you throw in the politics of then having to sell that and particularly in light of what you might have said over the last three years or indeed in May 2016 or whatever, that's where it gets really complicated. Is that fair?
2: I would say that I think looking at this from an outsider's perspective, the thing that surprised me the most has been the lack or the the slow take-up of public consultation. Because I think that, you know, where you're using the word politics... I think politicians want to do what their constituents want, but one of the things that's been very strange has been because the alignment of particular topics is not with one party or the other, there's been factions within political parties. One of the big things is it seems like the politicians themselves have really struggled to understand what it is that the British people think. They're mm-hmm. going to get out of these trade deals. And when they talk to businesses, I mean, there's a sense that throughout the last several years when businesses have get, given testimony at Parliament, you get the impression that for some politicians they say, oh, yes, yes, I agree with you. And others are saying, well, actually, I'm a little skeptical about what you're saying. You're complaining about supply chains and delays at the border. But if you're a multinational enterprise, don't you also run a, a border you know, trade mm-hmm. between the U.S. and Canada? And so I think one of the big things relative to other countries that go into trade negotiations is typically there's been a lot of surveying of the public. There's also been a lot of calls Mm. for evidence to business. And so I think politicians have, you know, from just their constituencies, but also from formal testimony, maybe a bit broader and deeper knowledge base of what it is that business people want what it is that labor unions want, what it is that other civil society groups like, you know, environmental advocates Mm. or child advocates, what all these different groups are looking for in the agreement. And so when they start the negotiations, they can say, well, you know what, this has just got to be kept off the table. I think one of the complications has just been trying the two things going on at the same time. One, there's been some political, you know, different groups and different people trying to get power in the country but at the same time those people have been trying to figure out what it is actually that the british want and that's been a complicated and difficult process because this is the first time you know since the
1: 70s that the country's really had to think about it
0: was that your experience in in government was that frustrating
1: yeah to an extent i think so the the areas where i think the the biggest difficulty is where you get the confluence of political and technical difficulties. So, you know, Northern Ireland is a great example of that. Obviously, it is very politically fraught and the politics there are so sensitive and you have so many um, different constituencies you need to manage. But finding a solution technically it was also challenging because exactly how and where the border would be, how it would work, um, and then how that fits with the politics. So it, you had that double whammy as, essentially of, of both the politics and the technical problems. And that's why it was such a knotty issue and, and will continue to be, I think, such a difficult issue uh, when you come to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and I think you're looking into the next phase, or this phase, you know, um, one of the areas I think is similar to that is state aid and state aid rules because, mm. you know, it is politically contentious. It's something the government here has set out and said you know we want to do this differently it's seen as a a sort of a bit of a bellwether test of are we free to be able to support our economy how we want but it's also technically difficult in the sense that it's tied to a number of treaty rights. It's not just about are you going to align with this regulation or not. It's about sort of these, these rights set out inherently in the EU treaties about how we manage uh, our state aid regimes and our subsidies. And, and so, you know, how do you import that into an international trade agreement and then into UK law and EU? You know, it's, it is technically complicated as well. So, you know, finding a landing zone there is going to be quite difficult.
0: Was that a big learning curve? Because as you say, you'd obviously been at Open Europe. There's a difference between sitting around in a think tank yeah. thinking stuff and then going into government and doing stuff I suppose I mean was that a learning curve or you I mean, obviously you've been knocking yeah. around the EU and Westminster and all the rest of it so you <laughs> you are expert in how it works but was there still a sort of still surprises in that
1: yeah definitely it is I think a massive learning curve but it's part of why I, I personally wanted to take on a job is you know sometimes I think in a think tank you can feel a bit like you're sitting on the sidelines commentating but you want to get in and play the game at times as well so you know you need to do a bit of both uh, I think it's important for, for to have that kind of experience um you know, so it definitely was a learning curve, and I think it's something that anyone who makes that transition has to go through. I think the particular challenge was obviously the time and the nature of the politics at the time I was in, and you know, it, it wasn't a normal, well, any yeah, stretch. Did not nor, pick it. normal. Nor, exactly yeah. normal administration. And I think you know, one one of the things that you learn is, particularly in that world, you have to build coalitions. You, you know, internally as well, you need to both internally and externally build coalitions to get things done. Uh, And I think, you know, it's easy, I guess, when you're sitting outside and thinking about how policy should look, you can design the sort of perfect policy. But in government, delivering that is is rarely ever possible. Um, So you need to sort of not let perfect be the enemy of good in some ways. You need to be able to build those coalitions and get over line what you can. Who
0: impressed you, either on your side or on the EU side, that you thought this person gets how to do this, how to get things done, is a good negotiator? I don't know. Who impressed you?
1: I mean, I don't particularly want to name names of civil servants and things. So, it's, right. but um, you know, you know, I was always, you know, very impressed with um, people like David Liddington, Julian Smith, um, who were working in very difficult times, trying to hold the party together. You know, Gavin Barwell as well did a lot to keep the government on. Track or at least uh, uh, alive, um, shall we say, uh, for longer than many people expected. And obviously, on the EU side, you know, um, it's been banned, formidable negotiator, uh, and you know, um, completely across her brief and and knows knows the detail and knows what she wants and, and how to try and deliver it for for the EU. So, you know, lots of impressive people in, on both sides and, you know, lots of civil servants that I worked with, who I won't name, but who, who did, a, did an, a hugely important role and, and deserve a lot of credit for eventually getting a deal of some form over the line.
0: Which you wrote. You wrote the deal, <laughs>
1: right? <laughs> no, the credit should go to the um, should go to the negotiators on both sides for getting the deal. I sort of wrote a well-timed article, I guess. Um, you know, others can say how influential it was or not, but um, if it had some positive impact, I see that as a good thing. Um, and it, you know, after three years of, of working on it, it would be a bit ironic if I had more influence from the outside than the inside. But you know, <laughs> um, it, it, if it was any help, then that's uh, I think a positive.
0: Um, we've mentioned sort of sovereignty in passing, but that's a big part of this. Um, you know, one of my questions is: Is there's this idea that the EU and the UK have fundamentally different worldviews, and that is part of the problem approaching this uh, negotiation that the UK is all about? Sovereignty, and that's what Brexit about was about. Whereas the EU is just saying, "Well, we're just did a trade deal." Is that fair, or are they just putting it on?
2: So I don't know if they have fundamentally different views. I think one of the things that strikes me is the British seem to have realized it, they're still trying to fight for their sovereignty, having after having left. Which I'm saying, like, wait, you guys are a sovereign nation; you don't have to sign the deal. Why are you so eager to tell everyone you have sovereignty? I think bigger picture, though is when you sign a trade deal, you give away a little bit of your sovereignty. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why the U.S. is having all these fights at the WTO. They're unhappy with the WTO encroaching on their sovereignty through trade agreements. Um, and so I think one of the interesting things here is there's some areas of trade that are much more particularly invasive. So trade in services is much more of a challenge than trade in goods. Because mm. when you when you trade a good, it hits your border, and you say, oh, it either meets our safety standards or it doesn't. If it does, come in. If it doesn't, go back. Whereas with services, you've got somebody coming in and providing a legal document, and they have to meet the standards in your country. But it's much trickier to check that the service flow being given you know, in your shore by a foreign agent is conforming with everything you want. And in, in similar ways, these rules about subsidies and competition policy about labor market standards. Essentially, you know, one of the things that's been happening with trade agreements around the world is high-income countries have been asking lower-income countries, we need you to raise your game on labor market standards. We need you to allow union formation. We need you to ban child labor. So some are very simple things, like everyone Mm -hmm. thinks, okay, we should ban child labor. But the trick comes in how do you enforce that once you've got the commitment? And the U.S., In its experience, it got burned because it had some agreements about labor market standards with Central American countries, and they had a dispute where they said, well, actually, there's some in Guatemala, we're not getting um, unionization rights enforced, and so we're going to complain about this. And ultimately, they found they didn't have a lot of enforcement power, although they had Mm -hmm. negotiated some. So going forward, now the U.S., in its new agreement with Canada and Mexico, they've established some labor market standards. Essentially, it's the same thing that you know the UK and the EU both say they want the other one to do. So they both say, like, let's just follow ILO labor standards. Where they differ is the EU seems much more open to we need to have this subject to some sort of dispute resolution, and the UK has said no dispute resolution over labor markets. And interestingly, in Canada, in the EU Canada agreement. If there's a dispute over labor market conditions, so one side is not enforcing it, there's explicitly in the the Canada-EU agreement it says we will go to a joint committee and we will just, you know solve this through our standard dispute settlement way. The UK has said, oh, we're not gonna we're not gonna have any labor market standards. Like we'll set our own, but we won't negotiate. And it's kind of like, well, actually, guys, on this one, you're a little outside the norm because the U.S. is happy to do this, Canada's happy right. to do this. So if you, you know, you can still be a sovereign nation, but say, OK, we commit to enforcing basic labour protections that we set for yeah. ourselves. So,
0: so the UK is saying that, but the UK is presumably not about to just trash all its labour market rules. So it is just about saying we're doing this for the sake of, you know, um, uh, what they call it, virtue signalling or... possibly anti thing. I I don't know what you're saying.
1: I think think this comes from the starting point and where the EU is coming at this from. So if they were talking about just enforcing sort of ILO and and slightly above common international standards, I think the UK would be willing to look at some kind of dispute resolution in line with standard um, FTA enforcements. The challenge we have is the EU is coming at it from, you have to have non-regression from current EU laws and they should be reviewed over time. And as soon as you introduce that concept of something doing to do with EU law, you bring the ECJ into it. So, and that's the concern I think on the UK side, is that the EU is saying, okay, we have to have non-regression from EU standards, and it has to be subject to dispute resolution. And that means if you change your laws and we think it goes below these standards, Oh, who defines what that standard is? It's the ECJ. So we have to go to the ECJ and ask them how that law is defined. That's
2: not what it said in the mandate, though. But that's the implication. Well, this is is the problem, is the British are interpreting it as...
1: From the first phase, that is exactly what the EU did. Anywhere there is EU law, the ECJ has to have a role. That's the EU's rules, and that is what they will do in this phase and they did in the last phase. Um, So they will say, wherever you have a question of definition of EU law it has to be interpreted by the ECJ. The ECJ doesn't have to resolve the dispute, but they have to say, this is what the law means, and then the dispute resolution has to take that into account. But that is still too much for the UK. The UK doesn't want to have EU law in it at all. So if it was about saying, let's not regress from common international standards, ILO and around there, I think the UK would accept dispute resolution, and it would be in line with the joint committee and then an arbitration panel. But because the EU is coming at this from an EU law perspective, Um, And that's what they're looking for. The UK is taking a harder stance by saying no dispute resolution because we know where that's going to go.
0: So what's the resolution to this? Isn't it right? Again, me as an idiot would suggest the UK will say, well, we'll just sign up for it for now. If we change the rules somewhere down the line, then it has some implication on tariffs uh, so you know so we, think, do, we sign up to it for december and then deal with it further down the line is that, so i think that, 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 sort of,
1: that sort of fudge is very difficult here because um it leaves it too open and neither side will be happy with it and it just kicks the can i think they will want to try and find a solution but in you know second size state aid i think in the other level playing field areas there are solutions so i see two broad solutions one is you either go down and go to something in line with uh, other FTAs where you, you don't say Uh, about EU rules but you talk about international rules and potentially even common standards and you have a standard dispute resolution that doesn't have any scope for EU law and therefore no scope for the ECJ I think both sides could probably live with that or you go not enforceable and say okay we're not going to regress from EU rules and common and, and the current standards but it's not enforceable and therefore there's no role for the ECJ and there is precedent for that in the offer that the EU made to the UK under the previous Northern Ireland backstop And a lot of people talk about looking at international precedents. But I think actually in this negotiation, that's one of the most useful precedents because it's something the EU has said. We're willing to give this level of market access for this level of level playing field. And the exchange was a customs union, which is more market access than what the UK is currently asking for under this FTA. Um, In exchange for level playing field, yes, it had alignment on state aid rules, which I don't think the UK is going to agree to this time. So that is still a separate problem. But in all the other areas, it basically said non-regression from EU rules, but it wasn't really enforceable. And so that is another potential landing zone. So those are the two potential. You can either go either way. You can keep non-regression from current levels, but it won't be enforceable. Or you can have non-regression from a more standard international approach with some kind of enforcement. I think either of those could work. Hi, Alan here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. We've covered a few
0: flashpoints. Are there others that we should be looking out for that you think uh, will not be solved? What are the issues that just, you know, there's not gonna, they're not going to be in that deal?
2: I guess I see the big issue as the level playing field, and I don't think they're going to come up with an agreement on subsidies. It's just too complicated to deal with. I think what the EU negotiated with Canada was basically we're going to follow the WTO rules, and I think that's probably what the UK will push for and just say, look, we can stick with the WTO rules. We can also acknowledge that this maybe doesn't go far enough. But we need to push off into the future how we're gonna deal with some of these things. I mean there were also some weird things to me in the negotiating mandate, but also it's part of the CETA agreement. It's this general thing, oh we're gonna you know, ask for domestic regulation to be not too bureaucratic and not too cumbersome. And it's just almost like just political language like everybody hates bureaucracy. Okay. Um, I quite a lot like of, bureaucracy. <laughs> a lot of calls for transparency and stuff. So there's some things that are in there that seem quite um, not very substantive to me. But there's some things that you know everybody wants to happen. It's not clear it has to happen right away. I think the digital services, digital trade, that has to happen sooner or later. It's not clear that that will happen immediately. How
0: interesting are negotiating mandates? You've mentioned a couple so far, so clearly you read negotiating mandates. Are they fun to read or are they really, really boring?
2: They tend to be short. So that's Ooh, one that's, that's one good thing, and they tend to have like big headers, so you can kind of figure <laughs> out what you're looking for right away. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why people find this stuff so dry and boring and tedious if you're not a lawyer, is when you read it, there's often references to other things. In the negotiating mandate, so if you read about subsidies, there's references to ILO charters and WTO rules. And if you don't know what those are, you don't know, is this like kind of a bunch of silly nonsense words? Or is there some (laughs) substantive meaning here? They're not exactly exciting reads.
0: And we've had another one this week, the U.S. mandate. Now, I sort of referred to something as being sort of virtue signaling. This U.S. deal, I mean... I've seen figures that it's worth less than, what was it, the town, the side of Chelmsford or something yeah, like one that? one-tenth of one percent. this is virtue signalling, isn't it? Well, isn't, I, it doesn't I, really matter if it's a US deal,
2: does it? As, as an economist, I am really welcome this report because I think the estimate of the value of the agreement is probably right on target. So I think we've known that, you know, economists who've been running simulations on this knew in 2005, if the UK and US did a deal, it would be very, very small value. So at least now we have... The government's done a rigorous and very careful analysis of the benefits. We can see that the benefits are not huge, okay? And so there can be some time. One of the things, some of the benefits of of trade agreements are a little bit hidden. They tend to create more competition in all the countries involved. When there's more competition, prices stay lower. And that's a general, broad benefit for consumers in both countries. So if you can get things that cause there'd be a little bit more competition. You either get more variety of products in the market or you get lower prices. Those are good for everyone. And, and the estimate is supposed to be capturing that, but it could be that, you know, this might be one of the areas where we don't fully get all the dynamic benefits. The deal aren't always in the estimates. But I think the U.S. analysis told us, I think, the truth, like a very realistic picture. And so now I think people can say, okay, well, how much time do we want to devote over the next, say, five years to really going for a U.S. deal versus how much time do we want to devote to working on the Thorny issues with Europe.
0: Are you interested in this American deal? Role? Are you just like, Look, I've got my hands full with Europe. I, yeah, know, I mean, America's really not interesting me.
1: It's, it, it, you know, I mean, it can it can help on the margin and it can be useful in certain areas. So we shouldn't dismiss it. I think we should also recognise that. Yeah, I agree with the thing that you know, they said on the economics. There are also the politics and the strategic exactly. benefits to these sort of trade deals, and that's obviously a massive part of of why the UK and US are looking to do this kind of a deal. But there's also then, you know, as with the EU deal, the basic trade off between speed and depth and breadth you yep. know um and he, you know again i tend to sort of be optimistic in the sense yes they could do something this year on a u.s deal right
0: so- i'll give you a pound, and then put it on deal or no deal with america by the end of the year
1: I Wait, think there'll be something. I mean, a, you know, whether exactly what it will be, uh, you know, it again depends where you define the deal. But I think there will be something to, um, that both sides can say, you know, uh, the naysayer said we never get this done and, and we got it done and it's um, providing a pathway to a beautiful uh, relationship going going into the future.
0: That perhaps feeds into my next question, which is the, the Brexit dictionary. This is mm-hmm. a feature that's grown organically because Brexit's not a word anymore, right? <laughs> We're well, not allowed to use yeah. Brexit. That's what the government says. Um... So what is the what is the word or phrase that's gonna dominate this year? We've mentioned level playing field a few times. I is think, it is it chlorinated it. chicken?
1: Is that the phrase that's gonna dominate that. this this yeah. year? What what do I, we think, think? I think level playing field is a pretty good bet. Mm. You know, it will it will level play all state aid, subsidies, that kind of thing. That will be a big part of the discussion. I also think potentially rules of origin could come into it, you know, it's it's gonna come a bit more to the fore as as part of the negotiation. Um, you know, we've heard this the, the mantra that used talking about of zero tariffs, zero quota, zero dumping, the three zeros. You know Ooh, that could be one. that could be a new one that they they start repeating over and over again, and, and these sort of mantras sometimes take hold. So those are the kinds of things. There was one, I think, one of them, whether it was Barney or someone, uh, the grey zones. You know, Ooh, uh, that they voiced, one, which yeah. which I think I think could catch on. So sounds you know, a bit let's, scary. Uh, grey yeah.
0: sounds a bit Harry Potter. Yeah, no, the grey yeah, yeah.
2: In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently
0: what would you recommend to understand what has happened and possibly what might be going to happen You know, interpret it as you wish um, Meredith do you want to go first? Have you, you've got something?
2: Sure, so I wanted to step back from Brexit because I think one of the things is people get a little bit too involved in the politics and the day to day and not thinking about the big picture so Um, One of my favorite books for the non-specialist on trade is Doug Irwin's Free Trade Under Fire. It's in a fourth edition. It's a long book, it's over 300 pages, but it's written for anyone who's been to, you know, university educated or a um, well-educated person. So he basically makes the case for free trade and explains to you in detail why it's good and then goes through some of the problems that we have emerging around the world related to freer trade. So, you know, problems in labor markets, concerns over the environment. And he kind of goes through and says, well, here's the part of the problem that's legitimate. Here's where people are going a little bit overboard. If you don't want to read 350 pages, I will say I wrote a short essay in a journal called International Finance called Understanding the Challenges to the World Trade System. And that, in that essay I summarise some of the main theses in um, Doug Irwin's book as well as um, in another volume on trade policy.
0: Would you what would you recommend real to, to understand so all I, of this? I
1: struggled to settle on a single thing for this mm. to be honest. Um, so I think look, understanding it, I think you need to understand a bit the history of where this has come from, particularly within the Conservative Party. So I would say, you know, I don't have a specific thing but the area I would look in is from the sort of 92 Maastricht rebels onwards, sort of thinking about uh, that was really for me the start of the UK being on a slightly separate path to the rest of the EU, and within the Conservative Party, the start of this group of Euroscepticism growing. Uh, and so, anything you know, whether it's John Major's biography and, and you know the the, the way the the Maastricht Rebellion and, and the votes went down at that time and the arguments in play, um, but also just yeah, the evolution of, of uh, the stance of the Conservative Party and those MPs from then through to. You know, I guess you know Cameron's promise for the referendum, and, mm. and it's all it's all in my view linked, and and you can see it going through you know from from then into sort of the business for Sterling campaign, um, and you know into then um, yeah the Conservative Party and and the referendum commitment.
0: Two really interesting recommendations there. I thought Raoul's was interesting because of my age, basically. For me, Maastricht was very much right at the beginning of my sort of political consciousness, if you want to call it that. So it's an an obvious lodestone for me, but perhaps if you're younger or older than me, then where it fits into the narrative is uh, not quite as clear. Um, And I'm certainly not suggesting that where I place it in the narrative is necessarily correct. So yeah, worth going back to look at that I think and I was interested in Meredith's recommendation because it's 300 pages a long book I don't know I, I would say you know like 400 pages maybe, maybe 600 maybe I just read very long books Or very short books, I don't know. Do share your thoughts um, on that and indeed anything else that was in the podcast. You can contact me. I'm at Political Yeti on Twitter or go via the UK and a changing Europe. Their website is ukandeu.ac.uk and you can find them on Twitter at ukandeu and and you'll find them on Facebook and all the usual channels. So get in touch. Uh, You have no excuse for not doing so. Uh, this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a Changing Europe. The music, again, was the Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. And this podcast was uh, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back soon for another episode. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>